Good morning. My name is Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. We're, uh, we're glad to have you here. Um, we're in a series on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, last, last week we talked about uh, the, the section that says when Jesus teaches us to pray that your kingdom would come. And this morning we're talking about this sort of tail end of that. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm going to read a couple passages, um, one from the book of Matthew, one from the book of Titus. And then uh, I'm going to ask you a question, which will be on the screen. We've been, uh, because Christians have been writing and teaching about this uh, for 2,000 years, we have a wealth of help from catechisms, which is a form of teaching and question and answer. So I'm going to ask you a, a catechism question. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, the version from the Christian Reformed Church of North America, their translation of it. Uh, and if you feel comfortable, you can answer that question out loud. You'll absolutely get the question right. So if you need to feel good about yourself, just say what is on the screen and you, you get it right. All right, this is from Matthew chapter 7. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And then from the book of Titus, chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now, the question, what does the third petition mean?
Good job. I love that. Without any back talk. Uh, I love that translation. All right, let me, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you still speak to us. And God, I pray that we would not just hear the words of Scripture in our ears, but that our hearts would be soft. We pray that we would hear your Spirit's voice applying those words. Father, would you help me to speak in accordance with those words? Jesus, let us be a people together who sincerely and earnestly seek for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for your help in this and all things. Amen. Um, I don't, I don't know um, what kind of church background you might have. Um, I, I grew up, I've, I've mentioned before, I grew up in, in churches that definitely were not like this. Uh, I grew up in charismatic churches um, where, like, everybody here pretty much wants us to be done with church in 90 minutes. And if it's 95, we have a problem. Uh, I grew up in churches where 95 minutes was a good warm-up, and it was a lot louder, uh, a lot more active, and there's a lot of things I, I really appreciate and love about how I grew up, and one of the things that I think was good was the expectation that the Spirit of God still speaks to His people. I, I think that's actually biblical. I think that's a good thing, and uh, now, a lot of that, how that manifested, how that worked out, sometimes there were some, there were some weird things, for sure. Um, but there was always a sense that at any given moment, the Spirit of God can and does break into the ordinary to supernaturally speak to his people. Uh, I think that's a wonderful reliance. I think it's a wonderful habit. And honestly, it's, it's one that I regularly return to in prayer and ask that the Spirit of God would still uh, make me a person who's constantly looking to him and, and saying, would you speak to me? The thing is, though, when we start talking about discerning the will of God, when you grow up in that kind of context, things feel different. They seem different. Now, listen, discerning the will of God, if you're around Christians at all, of any stripe, that becomes a really important discussion. It's clearly very important to Jesus. In the passage that we read, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of what Jesus is talking about in this in, from Matthew chapter 7 is about knowing the will of God and doing it. And Jesus emphasizing that it's really important that you actually do the will of God, that it, it is not sufficient to just know things about him, but it is important that you actually do what he says. He says that if you don't actually obey his teaching, you're, you're a fool who's built their house on a foundation that can't last. And when the storms of life will come, your house will collapse and it will be a disaster. He, he says that there are two ways of living life. And the, the more difficult way is the way that is actually living in obedience to Jesus' teaching. So Jesus clearly says knowing and doing the will of God is really, really, really important. When I was growing up in and I bet this is true of plenty of you, the, the idea was when you are trying to discern the will of God, that's usually some sort of Christian language like that, 
you are usually confronted with some series of decisions and you want to know what is the way that you should go. What is the decision that you should make? And in the tradition that I grew up in, the charismatic church I grew up in, when you know from a fact and from observation that God does in fact speak to his people, and you're now asking, okay, do the speaking thing again so that I know what it is I should do, and then nothing apparently happens. It's paralyzing. And, and whether you grew up in a charismatic church or not, I think a lot of people have this experience. I, you, you may or may not know, I, I teach at Montreat um, and get to know college students. That's how I first got to, to know Sierra. Um, college students are really busy discerning what is the will of God. Um, they, they have a lot of questions about what the nature of their life should be. They're making really important decisions. What should I major in? Who should I marry? What should be my first job? Things like this. So the conversation with them is often, what is it that I should do? How do I discern the will of God? And a lot of times what people are wanting in that moment is some sort of mystical experience. They want something to happen, a light, a voice, a feeling that will very clearly and definitively tell you this is the way that you should go. And my suggestion to you is that is not what Jesus is teaching us when he teaches us to pray. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, in fact... We, we are approaching this when we, when we run into that logjam, that, that fear, that sense that I, I, must, I must arrive at the right decision. God has some sort of binary yes, no, black, white choice, and he's withholding it from me, and I've got to figure out which one is the right choice to make. So when I'm praying let me know your will so that I can do it. I, I'm trying to see behind God's cards so I can cheat the game and I can, and I can make the right choice and, and succeed and win. And I don't think that that is actually what Jesus is teaching. I don't think that it's, in fact, a, a mature or helpful way to view what God wants from us as people that follow him. Because as you listen just to one example from Titus chapter 2, there is a way in which God wants us to have our behavior shaped and changed and formed. Paul is saying that in Titus 2. Part of salvation is that you are changed into a person that lives a kind and a particular kind of life. It is a life that looks like his. And so that knowing and doing the will of God is not about some special, spectacular experience where you know right choice, wrong choice, this is what I should do, and I won't move until I know which one it is. But instead, it is the process of being transformed to know Jesus more and more deeply so that you instinctively know the kind of person and character that Jesus is, and you are becoming like that. And you're choosing, you're deciding, you're working in life. More and more conforms not to your character, but to his. 
And it doesn't paralyze you then to seek out the will of God. It should liberate you. I want to propose to you that the scriptures actually show us what this can look like in the book of Acts. In the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, he stands in front of the apostles and he gives them very clear direction. This is what you're supposed to do. Make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he leaves. He does not go to each individual person and say, Peter, step one, you need to take a job at this place, and on the next day you must do this task, and on the following day you must do this task, and when this big job decision comes, turn left and not right, and then after that one, so on and so forth with all of the apostles, and then moving to the 70 who were potentially still there, and everyone gathered in the upper room, the 120, he doesn't do that. He just looks at all of them and he says, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Make disciples. Boom. And what do you see happening in the book of Acts? They do it. They they don't stop and say, does Jesus want me to go to this part of Jerusalem to make disciples? They don't. They just go. Because they know Jesus. And Jesus has clearly already told them to make disciples. Now, I want to I show you a specific example of this in Acts chapter 16. Because I don't think that this means Jesus just leaves you and says, figure it all out, make all the decisions you would like, and good luck. This is, this is Paul now. Paul is on missionary journeys. And again, I would, I would say to you, go read Paul's missionary journeys. See how many times Paul says, Jesus, should I go on a missionary journey? He just goes because Jesus has already told him, go to the ends of the earth and make disciples. Paul just assumes that this is what I am supposed to do. Now, this is what happens in Acts chapter 16. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. No explanation. And when they come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. No explanation. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, people read the end of that part and they're like, this is how Jesus tells you to do what you should in your life. No. Jesus does do that sometimes. Jesus did that once with Paul to send him a vision. Paul did not at any of these other places where, for whatever reason, they discerned that the way was closed. Paul did not stop, camp out, and say, man, we better wait. We better wait and see. We better hope that something comes to tell us what to do. They said, this way is closed, but I know what Jesus said. He said, go to the ends of the earth. So I'm just going to keep going to the ends of the earth. And every time that they were stopped and something didn't work out, when they were doing what they knew Jesus would approve of, They stopped and they asked, what is going on? What ought we to do? 
And Jesus does intervene. He supernaturally speaks to them, and he says, go here. And Paul then proceeds to Macedonia. He brings the gospel to Europe for the first time. And then there's no more visions. Not like that. They just keep right on going. Because they understand, they know who Jesus is. They know what he wants. And they work under his direction. They are clear on the will of God. Because he's made it known to them. And they are humble enough to wait and allow for him to redirect them. And that, I think, is much more like what it is to follow Jesus and to discern the will of God. When, when, when I'm talking with people who are, who are really in the thick of this, usually when they're trying to figure out, should I marry this person? There is all kinds of fear on the edge of this decision. Is this the one for me? Does God want me to marry this person? I'm just waiting for God. I've seen people extend their dating experience for a long time because they are just waiting for God to tell them, this is the one for you. And I just tell them, it's not going to happen. Now, I say that, it might, okay? I do know some people have had experiences that I really do believe as God just does something strange and weird and says, whatever, marry this person or don't marry this person. But by and large, I don't think that it works that way. I ask them, what kind of person is this that you are dating? Is this a good, godly person? Do you love this person? Do you want to make a commitment to them? Are you ready to covenant your love to them and to bear that out for the rest of your life? Is this the kind of person that you can make that choice with? And if the answer to all those questions is yes, this is the one. Marry them. There is no dream to wait for. There's just do it. God likes marriage. He likes godly people. He likes you making covenants with godly people. Marry them. He sent me to tell you. Here it is. It's the vision. It's happening right now. It's not a mystical experience all the time. It is the ordinary conforming of our will to knowing and understanding Jesus and what he likes and what he loves and becoming more like him. Now, there's a different version of this where the language of this stuff gets used to, to bless doing whatever it is you want. And there is a subtle difference here in the way that it manifests. Because I, I've certainly had conversations with people who will use the language of just saying, I know that Jesus loves me, to excuse and to do you doing whatever it is that you want to do. Let me give you an example from my personal life, from me. I remember years ago, I was not the pastor of Eyesight. This was, you'll see why this would be impossible. But um, I like English soccer. Does everybody know this? I have a favorite team. It's called Arsenal. It's a wonderful thing and also miserably sad at the same time. And the, the very difficult thing about being a fan of an English soccer team where you actually want to watch the games is the time difference 
And it's usually, very often, the very best games happen on Sunday mornings. Church. And I, re- I think it was Arsenal-Liverpool game. And I wanted to, I really wanted to watch it. That is the truth. I just, here's what I said. Jesus does not love me based on my performance or my attendance at church. He will always love me. Therefore, Jesus loves me going to the Mexican restaurant to watch the soccer game instead of going to church. I just made a very simple logical transference. Jesus is fine with me doing this. Jesus still does love me. In fact, though the problem is I have, I could not tell you in that moment does, does Jesus approve of what I'm doing? Because I didn't care. <laughs> the point was not whether Jesus approved of what I was doing. It was me approving of what I was doing and using Jesus' name to justify it. And that is also not doing the will of God. There's all kinds of ways that you can play this game. I'm just saying, I will live however it is I want to live. I'm a free agent. God God has made me his son or his daughter. And I'm basically just going about my choosing and doing in the world. I'm not waiting for God to give me a vision or a sign for everything that I'm doing. I don't need a special experience. I know enough, and what you know enough of is enough to make you dangerous. Because it's just theological band-aids and excuses to behave however it is you want to behave. See, this, this, is, this is the other sort of guardrail of choosing to follow. It's not always a mystical experience, discerning the will of God. But if Jesus' will always conforms to your will, it is likely not Jesus that you are listening to. It's probably you. Jesus' voice does not sound just like yours. When he does, you should hear alarm bells going off. Because it doesn't work like that either. Now, I think that Jesus provides ordinary resources for growing and understanding what his voice sounds like. I mean, one of them is is this that we just read from. This is part of the, the nature and the power of Scripture is that, that it is about Jesus' voice. It is about the voice of God. It is about the character of God, given clearly and directly to you. Now, it's, it's not always easy to understand. You don't always come to the Bible, flip it open, and say, man, it's all so clear now. You've, if you are getting guidance that way, please just buckle a seatbelt. Don't tell anybody else what it is you're doing because you're probably about to do something crazy if you just open the Bible and flip it to whatever you want. That's not how Scripture works. But scripture works as revelation of God and his character. And the more that you are immersed in scripture, you are being immersed in the mind and the will of Christ. So that you are being changed and transformed and more clearly understanding. See, that this is the key for Jesus is that you actually know the will of God and you do it. You must know what the will of God is and you must do it. And this helps you know what the will of God is. 
Maybe not for your specific decision making, but you begin to know that his will flows out of his character. And you are knowing his character better and better and better. So you should open your Bible if you want to know what the will of God is. Is it going to provide you the quick and easy answer what you should do in your job? No, probably not. But you begin to understand the rationale, the habits of God's action in the world. And you start to see how it is he might act according to his will. And you don't do it alone. We live in a hyper-individualized, experiential culture. And we think, if I have a sensed experience, personally and individually, of what God might want, then that's it. I've got it. That's all I need. We do not follow Jesus like that. Neither, neither the people of the Old Testament, the Jewish people, nor the people of the New Testament, Christians, understood themselves primarily as individuals without real connection to a community. Because sometimes, many times, you need the community of God to say, that thing that you are hearing and sensing, you've misheard Jesus. That's not him. Because we all are prone to delude ourselves. It's very easy to do. I, I did not ask anyone before I went to the Mexican restaurant that Sunday, hey, what do you think? Is this something that God would want me to do? Is this in line with the character and the will of God? I just said, seems good to me. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Come on, you gunners, let's go. It would have probably taken four minutes of a conversation with roughly two people to say, is that, are you going there because Jesus loves you or you just want to go watch a soccer game? And we all need the examination of other people from outside of us. We, we are not meant to live the will of God as individual, siloed, private garden houses of our own experience. Because part of following Jesus is to do it with other people. The disciples had their own individual relationship with Jesus, but they were also part of the twelve. And you and I were meant for the same dynamic. And yes, part of discerning the will of God is actually asking him. It's actually inviting Jesus into the ordinary of your day. Which is why he tells you to pray this way. He tells you to pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that as the catechism says, we would become people who do what he wants without any backtalk. We, we are meant to pray this way all the time. And when becoming people of prayer who are truly seeking for his will to be done over and over and over again, we become people who are inclined to listen and to look, to watch, to think his thoughts after him. And over time, we become conformed to his image, as scripture says. We just become looking more and more like Jesus. So praying this prayer ordinarily and regularly is a constant conf confrontation of the way that we prefer to live. 
which is that I do my will as I wish to be done and hoping that I can construct my own heaven on earth from my own rule and power. But the beauty of this prayer is not just that there is this alternative way of decision-making. It is that it is Jesus who is the one who is teaching you. And Jesus is the best person to teach you this prayer. He is the axis of your decision-making, not just because of the clarity of his teaching, but because he is the one who has prayed this with the most at stake. In the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew chapter 26, chapters after teaching this prayer and these principles, Jesus will himself be confronted with the terrible cost of knowing and doing God's will. And he will say, if it is possible to do otherwise, please, let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus fulfills what we still pray for. Because in that moment as he goes to the cross, he knows that you and I are not very good at praying this way. We are not good at knowing and doing the will of God. We are people who are in need of being rescued from our own domain and dominion. And in Jesus is not only just the example of how this ought to be prayed and lived, but a revelation chiefly of the will of God. And it is to save you. Because the answer in Jesus' story is, the Father's will is that the Son would be crucified, that he would go down to the grave for you and for me. You and I, who would prefer time and again our own will, who would ignore him or use his name to justify our own self-crusades. It is the Father's will to save you. And it is the Son's delight to choose the will of God. When you can see that this is the one who is teaching you to pray this way, you understand that knowing and doing the will of God is not a constraint of your desire and a slavery, but it instead is freedom. This one will do good to you. The will of God is not to crush you. The will of God is to save you. And that even in the moments when you question it and struggle the most... You must see that it is the crucified and resurrected Jesus who is teaching you this prayer. Because it is his own scars that will guarantee to you that the Father will be good to you. He is not withholding goodness from you. He is offering it to you at great cost to himself. That is the will of God. And when you hear him and you obey him, Life flows. You flourish. You're not enslaved. 
You're not deprived of pleasure. You are instead given great joy. Today, if you are here and you realize, there, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. Jesus loves me. This I do know. But you have taken that guarantee and that promise and have decided to live your own way in a number of areas of your life. God has more for you than what you have chosen. And the will of God is to deliver even you who, who bears his name and has forsaken him. And he will be good to you. If you would turn to him today, you will see all of his goodness in Jesus. And if today you are realizing you have been managing your own life, you have decided that you are the best commander, you are the best general, you are the best king, and you have been living for your own kingdom, you have never followed Jesus, I am telling you that you don't get to be the boss anymore. But you are a terrible boss. I say this as a terrible boss. I am a terrible king. And you are too. You were not meant to bear the weight of all of your life's decision making on your shoulders alone. You are instead made in the very image of God so that you could follow in his footsteps and look like your father in heaven, reflecting his character into the world for your flourishing and the flourishing of everyone else. That is a better way. And the Father's will, the will of God, is to save you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but instead turn and believe. And he will put you on solid ground, a rock that will not be shaken, putting you in a house that will not fall. And you will be with him forever as he has willed and worked out in you. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we give you thanks that this is your will, your good and perfect will, that it is better than what we work out on our own. God, we ask you to forgive us for never even considering what it is that you want for us or using you to justify doing what, or not doing whatever it is that we want. God, would you forgive us? I'm so grateful that you desire to give your people mercy. That's what you love to do. And you've made that so clear in Jesus. Father, I pray that our eyes would be fixed on you, that we would long more and more for a life that reflects you and your character because you're the best person that we know. You are the most beautiful person. You are the, there is no other like you. And we get to live life in and with you. Jesus, would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to draw ever closer to you together and individually that we would be a people that look like you in the world. And Jesus, I pray for those who are here who are, living their own life, a life of, of rebellion, a life that, that insists on maintaining control, that wants to be in charge of all the decisions. And Father, I pray that you would loosen their grip on their own life 
And that today they would know what the will of God is. That they would see the cross. They would see the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus. And know that it was your desire to save them. And Father, I pray that today they would turn away from a life of self-determination and self-control. And instead, cede themselves over to you. Jesus, we thank you that you've invited us to live with you and to be with you. We thank you for renovating our own hearts constantly changing us by the power of your spirit. God, we thank you that you're faithful until the very end. I pray that the day would come quickly when we'd see you face to face and your work would be completed and the will of God would be done here just like it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.